ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Dan Coates. Dan is the president of Wipols, the leading provider of Gen Z and millennial insights. An industry veteran and serial entrepreneur, Dan has spent 30 years in the marketing research industry and 15 years piloting Wipols to become a dominant provider of global youth research. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Each month, Mary Lee Bliss, your chief content officer, joins me to discuss what why Pulse's latest research can tell us about young consumers. And today I, I really wanted to do something a bit different. And so I'm talking to you about research itself, how to think about it, how to leverage existing research, when you should create bespoke research, how to approach creating a survey, if that's what you decide to do. So really taking a step back and saying, well, how should you be thinking about research? First, if I'm a practitioner, what kinds of questions would be answered by, you know, a survey subscription where maybe I'm not crafting the survey, but I get a survey or I can search online and look for public survey. What, and when should I say, gosh, it's time to craft my own. So how should I think about those three different types of surveys? There's a great thing about the market research industry is that we, we tend to market ourselves by sharing a little tidbits and factoids, publicly released information that we've collected. So always start with desk research. You know, just Google the kinds of things that you're looking for. You will be amazed at how much free information you can get uh, without spending a dime based on the, you know, the marketing uh, efforts of, of the industry. From there, you know, it's definitely faster and cheaper to go down the syndicated route. Syndicated it's a funny word, you know, basically you create research for a syndicate of buyers. So it's, it's meant to be produced once and sold to many mm-hmm. as opposed to custom research, which is meant to be produced for one client, one client only and sold to just them. And it's their, it's their property. They own it. It's work for hire at that point. So, so generally speaking, anything that you can comb through on the desk research side, on the syndicated research side, you know, it'll save you money. And, you know, maybe it'll allow you to get to the sort of deeper questions, skip over the the superficial stuff because because it's already what you know, and then move on to the stuff that really requires that that custom uh, approach. One of the things that I've always wondered is, you know, you do that desk research and you find something you're like, oh, this is perfect. But then you see the date. How do you mentally caveat when research is older than a year or is there, are there different, you know, if it's within the past year, it's probably pretty good unless it has to do with social media and tech, in which case, gee whiz, you really need six months. Like what are, how should we be grading the accuracy of some of this desk research, which may be old? 
you know, um, it's always a, a function of how fast things change. And so there are some things that are really pretty durable, um, you know, attitudes and opinions of various generations. We started studying millennials uh, as an organization like 19 years ago. And so, um, you know, when we first met them, they were they were buying snacks and and clothing, uh, but they had a certain sort of mindset about what they were doing, the intentionality of it. What we've found is that now that they're they're raising families of their own and buying homes and you know electric cars, the at the core values don't change. The behaviors, of course, are modified based on their life stage, but. But I, I feel as though, you know, it really is how much is it to the core identity of the person, in which case it should be pretty durable versus how much of it is, you know, related to their day to day actions. And so you raised a great example. Technology changes super fast. Really, anything that's over a year old is out of date and you've got to refresh it immediately, especially media consumption. We've been tracking social media platforms for a decade now. And the rise of TikTok over the last year is, is breathtaking. It's really it's really something. And so just just looking at the data from a year ago to now and you're like wow that's a that's a big jump and a big gap the the great news is if you find something that's old that you really like well there's a you know there's a great question that now you can incorporate in your custom research and you'll have the ability to track it over time so so you know don't look at it as a disappointment look at it as a sort of a, a compromise or at least a half gift you've got an old data point to compare it to now you've got a well phrased question that you can put in your hip pocket and and move forward with Right. So it's useful to inform sort of where you're starting to build a hypothesis is a good starting point. But so over a year, tech is changing too fast. But if you're thinking about core values, you can lean on them. Would you say that behaviors that are linked to values, for instance, if they did a survey about, I don't know, you know, people going to museums, yeah, would that be durable? Or is that changeable because the attention and the options have changed? You know, now we have these other digital things. Like, how should we think about, yes, it's in real life, but the landscape writ large is different. Yeah, I think you need to, to sort of ask yourself what's what's changed in, you know, in the context or the societal uh, sort of factors that might make that different. I'll give you a great example. We were on a pretty steady state. Um, you know, in terms of the issues and causes that young people cared about until the summer of 2020. And then mm -hmm. things changed a lot. Right. And so right. so every once in a while you have to say, OK, you know, has there been anything, any events, any, any developments? <laughs> any major pandemics which have yeah. changed behavior? <laughs> or, I mean, you know, in particular, uh, you know, the George Floyd Pro oh, protests, uh, or, right? right. Yeah. I mean, like, like those were like, okay, you know, listen, the environment is important and was leading, you know, um, the sort of list of things to worry about for, for years. And then all of a sudden, you know, social justice and, and, um, you know, race became just all of a sudden much more important. And so I think that you could, you kind of take a step back and say, okay, great. I'm going to ask this question. It's about this topic. You know, what's the dialogue been around that? Um, you know, definitely using Google search term sorts of frequency is just look for the spikes. If, you, if you're not so sure that, uh, you know, uh, whether there's been a lot of activity and action around a, a particular issue, search on uh, frequency of search terms in Google. And um, you'll quickly realize whether it's been a hot issue over the last little while. Ah, that's a nifty trick. So now let's back up 
I'm thinking about, let's say, purchasing syndicated research, you know, becoming part of that syndicate or mm-hmm. having custom research. There are different companies out there. What should a practitioner be looking for? What kind of questions should they ask about their process? The good news is there's some great syndicated companies. You know, Nielsen is probably the most well-known and, and you know, Nielsen really, you know, tracks devices. So your television and, you know, your radio and all these kinds of devices in an attempt to understand media consumption. NPD Group uh, really kind of focuses on cash registers, you know, who's buying what and on what frequency. Uh, Gartner focuses on various uh, roles, CIOs, CTOs. So everybody in the syndicated world has their shtick, as it were. I see. Um, So it's their lens with which they view that how they're viewing these. Yeah. Our our lens is audience related. Right. So so clearly we're all about the youth audience and and studying them, studying them well. And we're fairly unique. Um, There's others that that study audiences for sure, but they tend to be kind of broad and expansive. Um, We decided that there were enough of those already in existence that we wanted to really focus down on what we knew and what we knew well. Young people uh, change often. It's it's rapidly evolving information and they're a little bit tough to attract their attention. And and for anybody that thinks that, you know, you can just ask the boring questions that you ask old people to young people, you'll quickly find that, um, you know, it's not working so well. So we have a saying, which is if you ever find yourself emailing a teenager, you're just doing it wrong. Like that's not the way it works. Right. right? So you right. have to you kind of have to. Um, uh, understand where they are and how they live. Uh, right. But but aside from that audience focus, you know, there's topical coverage. There's some companies that are really good at CPG and some that, you know, specialize exclusively in auto, automotive, you know, various industries. And so they're always a, a good um, measure. You know, frequency so it matters. Sounds, so it sounds like if I'm purchasing, part of what I'm looking at is who looks at the world in the way that I want to have my answers be. If I want to talk about devices and consumption, maybe I skew more towards like a Nielsen where they're consuming media, or if I want to know about purchasing, I'm maybe looking more at, you know, that cash register stuff. And, and then depending on does that intersect with the audience or is it really an industry sector? And so that I slice and dice it that way, that that's how I should really frame my looking at those those vendors? Yeah. And and you may want to look at it in both different directions because to get what you want might be, you know, you'd look at Nielsen and then see whether they had youth stuff, or you might look at right. Y-Pulse and see whether they have we have media stuff. And so right. So the always- Venn diagram and how yeah. how it squares up. So let's say that I'm gonna do something bespoke. How do I decide if I should be doing a focus group or a survey? focus group is where you start when you you don't understand all the issues. You're you're trying to kind of figure things out, decide, you know, what the relevant discussion really involves. And there's no shame in that. We do that all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. we, we constantly say, well, do we know enough about this to know the right questions to ask? Or do we need to figure out what questions need to be asked? And there's nothing like qualitative research. Uh, We don't do a lot of focus groups, to be honest. We do asynchronous. If you want to weird out young people, ask them to come to a central location, sit around a board table, boardroom table, you know, stare at a mirror and answer questions. Their environment is, is hundred percent online and they like to participate asynchronously. So whether it's 11 o'clock at night or 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, they might have a thought that they want to contribute. Whereas if you make it all about, you know, for the next 90 minutes, we're going to interact together and, and, and solve a problem. You'll just find that you don't have access to the same number of people. So 
online uh, qualitative discussions where they get to sort of make their contribution over time instead of a single point in time mm, is okay. kind of a great way to kind of, um, you know, get your, 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 your arms around the issue, find out the balance range of topics that, that you want to try to explore and discover. And I have to tell you, all of the gems, all of the ahas come in qualitative. They never come in quantitative. Quantitative, in a, you, you write a survey when you pretty much know what the issues are and you want to peg hard numbers to them. You want to, okay. you want to scope the size and the scale of various trends or issues. You, you want to basically figure out the how many, how much, and how often of things. And so I'll give you a great example. You know, qualitatively, you're looking for new opportunities. You know, what kinds of unmet needs do you have? What kinds of products do you wish you, you, you could have access to that you don't have right now? And then once you figure that out, say, okay, great. Now here's my survey about some potential product concepts. You know, tell me which of these products is most appealing to you. Which would you use? How much would you pay for them? Right. Um, you know, and then and then that way you kind of you're encompassing and all embracing, and then you you um you know then you pin it down in terms of quantifying um, the impact or or the size and magnitude of it. So it sounds like you focus group in one way or another to make to to shape where you're thinking of asking your questions or if you don't really know, you know, sort of directionality. And then, then you decide, okay, I, I want to get some hard information. How exacting do I need to be in terms of knowing my goal, knowing what I want to do with the information before I even start? There's a real uh, sort of philosophy within the industry where you know, you've got to determine what your North Star is. It's always a great idea to have a primary goal, like this project will be a failure if we don't answer this question. So, so really, you know, determine your North Star. Don't let others talk you in and out of it. If the goal is to determine whether you can play in a certain space or be credible in a certain industry, fix that on the wall. And don't let everybody in their sort of ancillary needs kind of pull you off base, right? So you so, want to have your your goal, and then you're going to be testing your questions against that goal, right? Does this add to that answering that goal? Is that yeah? I, we we usually call it you know two buckets, you know need to have and nice to have. Okay. And and the punchline is is that you don't have unlimited access, particularly with young people, to their time and energy and attention. Um, you can ask them 45 minutes worth of questions. Well, what you'll, the, you know, what you'll get at the end of it is who does that. <laughs> yeah, what you'll get at the end of it is only the most earnest and stamina filled people. You'll look back and you'll see all the people that just left the survey along the way, and you'll wonder were their opinions important to me? And so we've done a bunch of research on this and published a couple of articles that we'd love to share in, in your links that sort of show that 13 minutes is about the right level for young people. And does that you know, 13 minutes include any questions about their demographics and, and those everything. things? Yeah, everything. everything. So from you start know. to finish, 13 minutes. Yep. You want to show them a video, include that in the 13 minutes. And if you think about it, it makes kind of sense, right? We right. used to have a time frame of about 23 minutes, thanks to television as to how long things should take. Uh -huh. And and now with webisodes and, you know, shorter content, you know, 15 minutes, what we notice is the second that you go past 15 minutes, it's disastrous what happens. You know, more than a third of people will actually bail from the survey the second it breaks the 15 minute mark. And so that's interesting. You, re you really need to keep it 
to this side of, of 50 minutes. In fact, 13 is the sweet spot. And then the other interesting thing is what device are they using to take the survey? We noticed that 15 minutes works if you're taking it on a laptop or a tablet. It's more like eight minutes if you're taking it on a mobile phone. Oh my and, goodness, people. <laughs> 13 minutes is that sort of, you know, in between space between, you know, a phone and a laptop. And so if you're really, if you're doing a mobile survey, forget 13 minutes, you got to keep it under 10. Wow. And, and, and all of your demographic questions get added into that count, unless you can get that somehow off the other information that you have with prior to the queries. So yeah. should if, you if you're smart though, if you're smart, you can make sure that you work with a vendor that's got a bit of a profile build up around these people. Right. You know, the worst thing that we do as an industry is ask people their gender and their age over and over and over. You know, right. once I answer that question once, you should probably just remember it. Well, but then there's data privacy and blah, blah, blah. But how, so, so then how should a practitioner think about open-ended questions? I mean, you want to be really like, first of all, how do you time the answer to an open-ended question? And secondly, you probably don't want to use very many of them. You know, open-ended questions can be really helpful. I mean, let's, let's be honest. You may not know everything when you start a survey. And so open ends are these kind of wonderful places where you can kind of be a little bit exploratory, be a bit discovery minded without really having a firm sense of, of what the categories they might fill out might be. Mm-hmm. It's always a good idea to have an other specify in any long list of things. Just see what you missed. If you notice that a third oh. of respondents select other specify, what that means is you missed the bus on the, on the categories. And, you know, hopefully you can sort of out of that a third of response being other specify, you can recategorize some things that you might've missed. But, but I had a, I had a stats professor who used to say that the open-ended question is the last refuge of the mentally weak. So what he was trying to say there is do your homework, figure out what the issues are in advance, structure your question properly. Don't go on a fishing expedition. But- this is why you do the focus group in the front. Yeah. Right. Or you. Yeah. So some of this stuff is is shaped. So you have your categories. So you know your things. So if, or your desk research or your right. syndicated research to kind of figure out. Okay, this has been asked before, and it seemed to work just fine with those categories involved. I see. So if I have a list of like I have questions I want answered, and they are just timing out. You know, and I'm hitting everybody on mobile. So they got to hit that eight minute mark. Don't want to go over. And it's just too many questions. Can I serve different questions and combine the results? Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's two ways to do it. One is independent samples. So as long as you're talking to the same type of people, you know, there shouldn't be a problem with you asking one group. So if you ask 13 to 39 year olds, one set of questions this month, and then another set of questions next month, you should be relatively certain that 13 to 39 year olds in general feel the same way. Sometimes what you really want are those linkages, right? So right. No, I don't just want 13 to 39 year olds in total. Or, or even, you know, the specific sub demographics of them. I want the same people to tell me whether they would do this and that. At which I, point I want it, the people who I want the people who watch shows on their phone to answer this particular question. I want to yeah. drill down. I see. Yeah. Okay. So so there's two techniques. One is a is a flat out recontact. The same people, you reach out to them again and say, hey, we've got another opportunity for you, you know, um, and, and we'd like you to answer the second survey for us. Mm-hmm. And 
And with that, you, you'd be amazed at how receptive people are, particularly if they enjoyed the first survey, they're going to you know, want to participate in the second survey. If you know that you need to take this two bites at the apple, you, you'll, you'll tee it up in the first one. Like, hey, you know, we'd like to talk to you again. Are you open to that? Um, sort of prime them for you reaching out down the road and asking for the second piece bucket of information. Um, but that being said, uh, timing matters. So if you ask them, you know, part one, part two, within a couple of days, you'll have like 90% of people who took the first part, take the second part. If it's, if it's a couple of weeks, it might be 70%. If it's a couple of months, it might be 50%. And so time is kind of the enemy. What's interesting is you might think you might be inclined to think, well, I'm going to give them a break because I don't want them fatigued, but it sounds like actually, as long as it's not attached as long as it's not the same survey itself keeping it proximate is a good thing we will sometimes piggyback them so that there are some Uh. people who have stamina who have the interest so what we'll do is we'll say okay there's two parts to this second part is whenever you're ready part a great two are you are you feeling good you know you're ready to go with part b what we notice Uh. is they get up grab something from the fridge and then come back and take part b and i i want to say like about 20 25 percent of people will immediately go through part b uh, oh. But then it's that eighty percent that you know need a little bit more time and space that you that you want to worry about from there. So you've you've built it in. So I want to cover a couple of things that were bundled into your answers, and we talked about sampling, you know, representative sampling. How does that work with regard to margin of error? And how should somebody, for instance, if somebody says I did a survey of five hundred people, and somebody else says I did a survey of five thousand people, we obviously feel like oh well, five thousand pretty Better. robust, more robust. Yeah. But at what point is, is there, you know, well, the difference between if I'm serving 5,000 versus 10,000, is that super big difference in my answers? You know, where do I start if I'm purchasing and deciding how many, how many people to pay to survey, how should I, how does it relate to margin of error? You know, margin of error definitely is something that people kind of fixate on. It is indeed the case that more is better, but at the same time, there's a, there's a point where you're really getting minimal additional effects, right? So when you're looking at how many people should I talk to a thousand people is like plus or minus uh, 3.2%, 3%. So that means if I see a number and it's say 60%, it could be 57, it could be 63, you know, it's somewhere between those two ranges. And, you know, I'm pretty sure of the results. Um, that if basically... I'm trying to tease out differences between choices, I sometimes see have seen surveys in magazines or something, and they'll be like, wow, this was three or four points higher than that. And I think, well, maybe that's real yeah. and maybe it's not. And so yeah. understanding if we're looking like, if, if I'm typically, should you think 10% is usually what you're ending up getting? Like you need yeah. a 10% difference to feel like that's a real difference I can put, hang my hat on or three. I know you guys do a hot, you guys have a very robust sample. Um, is that uh, unusual? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that, that, um, that one of the things that you need to kind of focus on is what's the price of being wrong, 
right? So there's some moments that are kind of bet the farm moments. You know, you want to be as close to accurate as possible. And like sometimes plus or minus 3%, that's not even good enough. I mean, think of a political election, right? Right, right. You know, like, especially in an America where, you know, it's like 51 one direction and 49 the other direction. Two points is the difference between being right, being dead wrong. I'm a recovered pollster. I used to be a pollster up in Canada. We would put a lot of energy into making sure that we didn't look foolish come election day. But in your surveys, what you definitely want to do is ask yourself, okay, do I kind of just need to know, like, listen, 60% is valuable information, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes whether it's 57 or 63, you know, that doesn't really matter. It's more than half, right? Right. Um, Either way. And that's kind of enough that you need to test a new product or, you know, move forward with a concept or not. The the worst case scenario is, is when it's right at that 50% number, right? That's where all of a sudden margin of error becomes pretty critical. If 90% of people agree with something, that number is robust, whether you're talking about 400 people or 2000 people, but it's really those close calls, that 50, 50 moment where Uh. all of a sudden, you know, how much to either side walk into your CEO's office and say, we've got a new product concept and 50, uh, 50 chances. Yeah. yeah. And 40% of people like it versus 60% of people like it. And at that point, you know, you'll really wish that you had that accuracy, right. Of wait, is it 40 or is it 60? Well, We only asked 300 people, so it could be 40 or it could be 60. We're not really sure. You know, that's the sort of bounded range around our stat. What they'll do is they'll send you right back out again. It's like, listen, find out whether it's 40 or whether it's 60, because I'm going to have a different decision based on one number versus the other. Well, and then if we tie that back to the conversation where we want to have a certain population answer question. So we have our big sample size. And then we've said, you know, how many are are using their mobile phone to do X, Y, Z thing. And we want to ask that population something. So when you get surveys and you start doing these slices, how far can you go before things fall apart? Yeah. The rule of thumb is if you're ever looking at something that's less than a hundred people, you're standing on sand. You're not really able to make a statement. And and again, you know, that, that margin of error creeps down to, you know, even those numbers, right? So mm. you're talking about a pretty big swing. Now, normally people don't make decisions off of slivers of slivers of slivers. They, they look at the sort of big picture. They use those slivers to kind of understand, you know, where is this most pronounced? Is this moving in a in a better direction amongst this subpopulation or a worse direction. Mm. And so you, you basically, anytime you're looking at a percentage and it's less than a hundred people, you should stop and maybe undo that cut to the next level up. And, and that's see. the very reason why you're absolutely right. We at Y Pulse do collect an obscene amount of sample. You know, we'll do half a million interviews this year um, amongst people 13 to 39 across seven countries for the simple reason that our customers really like to be able to slice and dice things. And so, you know, on the overall level, do, do we need 130,000 completed interviews in our brand tracker? No, not really. But we do if you want to s- slice it to right. how do Apple urban you, people or what have you. Germany. Yeah, exactly. Right. feel about this. Yep. Right. So we talked about you can, you know, you do desk research, you can have syndicated research, you can have your own research. Can I draw conclusions from two different surveys? two different populations, two different moments in time. Can I, can I knit that together and draw some conclusions? Is that reasonable? If the sample 
frame or the audience that you're looking at is the same, you can, you can make comparisons. Absolutely. You know, we talked to 13 to 39 year olds, but if somebody came into the room and said, you know, but I have this other data for 16 to 39 year olds, you'd say, okay, well, that's close. You know, mm. all depends on how 13 to 15 year olds might be different, but, but it's close. You know, right. other people might say, well, you know, I've got this study on, you know, on retirees and we'd be like, okay, just, it's not, comparable. maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't make any assumptions based on what retirees things thinks uh, about uh, how young people might feel or behave. Right. So what have I forgotten to ask you? What should listeners keep in mind when thinking about crafting their own surveys or using other people's research? Don't take it. Don't overthink it. Don't take it too seriously. A lot of people get hung up on margin of error and tests of significance, um, statistical reliability. Just a big number is a big number. This business is part art and part science. But that being said, you're just trying to improve your decision making and improving your decision making is going through that desk research process, finding out what else is out there, what other questions people have asked, combing through syndicated, running a survey, seeing what comes back. Don't get down in the weeds though. Always keep the big picture sense of, of, of what you're asking, follow your North star and, and you'll be just fine. You'll improve your decision-making by degrees. Don't overthink it a lot. I see a lot of marketers get really panicky around data and, and really it's a matter of keep the big picture in mind, follow your North star and tell a story. Some of the strongest people in our industry are people who can look at it all, figure out the 80 for the 20, the big picture sort of uh, trends, and then explain it in a way that means something to people. And I'm proud to say that Mary Lee Bliss, who you talk to every month, is definitely one of those people, right? I love her. She will help you understand the overall context of how young people are really living their lives day to day. And then certainly you can drill down into certain aspects of it, but never lose sight of the big picture. This has been great. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your time. Thanks. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.